So at this point of the program, um, I'd like to welcome Father Frank Duhigg from Newcastle West uh, to the program, who's agreed to give us a reflection on the Mass. So thanks, Father Frank, for, for joining us. Very welcome, John. Where would you like to start in terms of talking about the Mass? Well, I'd, I'd like to go back, uh, John, to two things that Jesus said towards uh, the very end of his life on earth. Uh, the first words I would like to focus on are what in fact were the final words uttered by Jesus in St. Matthew's account. You will remember where Jesus said, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all the commands I gave you, and know that I am with you always to the end of time. That last line, know that I am with you always to the end of time, leads us into the other words of Jesus that I want to focus on in this first reflection. And these words are the words spoken by Jesus at the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper. And I quote from the Gospel of St. Luke. Then taking a cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and share it among you, because from now on, I tell you, I shall never again drink wine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He did the same with the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. That is the moment on the night before he died when Jesus instituted the Eucharist and gave us this extraordinary treasure that we call the Mass. Now to come back to those earlier words which I emphasized a few moments ago, know that I am with you always, yes, to the end of time. Now, it is through his ongoing presence to us in the Eucharist that Jesus fulfills in a particular way that promise to be with us always to the end of time. In taking part in the celebration of the Eucharist, we are responding to the command of Jesus at that first Mass to do this in remembrance of me. In that earlier quotation, we heard Jesus say, Go therefore in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it is appropriate that the opening words of the Mass are taken from these last words of Jesus, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
So continuing on our reflections, on Father Frank's reflections on the Mass, and I suppose a question to ask Father Frank would that it was a matter of great importance to Jesus to leave us this gift of the Eucharist before his return to the Father. Why do you think this is so important to Jesus? I see the Eucharist, the Mass, as Jesus' parting gift to us. You see, Jesus came on earth to sacrifice himself for us and to redeem us. This was God's most powerful way of expressing his love for us. And Jesus knew that what was about to happen in those days immediately after the Last Supper would change our world, our lives forever. When Jesus would offer himself on the cross, body and blood, for our salvation. And knowing as he did how significant those events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday would be for humankind for all time, Jesus wanted to leave us a way of re-enacting and connecting with the momentous events of his death and resurrection. What happened on Calvary was that Jesus gave himself body and blood for us, and that is what is reenacted for us in the Mass. This passion, death and resurrection of Christ is known as the mystery of our faith. We will all be familiar with the acclamation of our faith after the consecration, where the priest says, the mystery of our faith, and the congregation respond with Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Or another response is, we proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. So when Jesus gave us the gift of the Eucharist, he enables us to connect forevermore with this great mystery and to reenact it. And of course, what Jesus does at Mass is give us the gift of himself, his body and blood. No greater gift can anyone give than to lay down one's life for one's friends, Scripture tells us. And of course, we make this connection with the cross at every Mass which begins with the sign of the cross. Maybe, Father Frank, you can say a word about the repeated greetings and salutations and responses in the Mass, please. Yes, well, first I would like to mention the sign of the cross at the beginning of every Mass. These words were first used for all of us when we were baptised 
in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And their use at the beginning of Mass reminds us that the Eucharistic gathering is a gathering of the baptized. In the earlier church, the unbaptized were not allowed to be present for the whole celebration of the Mass. The Mass only makes sense in the context of the faith as a whole. So the sign of the cross at the start of Mass reminds us that the Mass is a reenacting of Christ's passion, death and resurrection. And when the people respond with Amen, they are saying, I agree, I believe that I am entering into his death on the cross. The different forms of greeting which we use in the Mass are all taken from Scripture, frequently from the writings of St. Paul. For example, the Lord be with you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems that these and other greetings were used frequently as a standard form of greeting by the earliest Christians in just these words. St. Paul uses them very frequently. The phrase, the Lord be with you, has been made sacred by use from the earliest times, reaching back indeed into the Old Testament. Some of us, of a certain age, will be familiar with the Latin phrase, Dominus Vobiscum, the Lord be with you. So there is a case to be made for not modernizing these phrases, like, for example, to say, God bless all here, instead of the Lord be with you. The language of the Mass is not the language of the street. I think the Mass requires its own language to a degree. For example, in going into a neighbor to their house, we wouldn't say, the Lord be with you. Something like, God bless all here, would be more appropriate there. So in that sense, a somewhat different language is more apt. Similarly, with the response to that greeting, uh, a sign, a slightly different language, uh, for example, on entering a house, an appropriate response to God bless all here would be, and you too whereas a more proper response to the Lord be with you is and with your spirit. I think these few thoughts might help us with the greetings and language of the Mass. Oh,
at the beginning of every Mass, we always have what we call the penitential rite. Could you say a few words about the significance of that, please? As we pointed out, uh, John, in our previous reflections, it was to redeem us from our sinfulness that Jesus died on the cross. We're all sinners to a greater or lesser degree, and it is that sinfulness that has the power to lead us away from God and, if serious enough, uh, deny us salvation. When I say we are all sinners, I think we should not respond to that too negatively. To say we are all sinners is to say that we all fail in some way or other to live up to God's commandment of love. Love God and love your neighbour. And that is an extremely challenging commandment. It would be a brave person indeed, a blind or foolish person, who would say, I have no sin. That would be the same as saying, I haven't been unkind, I haven't been impatient, I haven't been uncharitable, I haven't been untruthful, I haven't been judgmental, I haven't been boastful, I haven't been conceited, I haven't held a grievance, I haven't failed to forgive, and so forth. Which of us can say that? When we acknowledge our sinfulness at the beginning of Mass, we are acknowledging that Christ needed to die for us, for me, not just for others. Of course, the huge benefit of acknowledging our sinfulness at the start of the Mass is that we are opening our minds and hearts to God's wonderful mercy. It takes humility to acknowledge our need of that mercy And in the Confiteor, the I Confess, we confess our sins to Almighty God and to one another. We say, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters. And we do this aloud in the congregation. Indeed, some of the people we have sinned against may be there participating with us in the Eucharist. And how fitting we look for forgiveness as we approach the altar to listen to the word of God and to receive Jesus. We express our request for God's forgiveness in the confiteor, or an equivalent penitential rite, and in the Lord of Mercy, the Kyrie. Sometimes the penitential rite is replaced by a ceremony of sprinkling the congregation with holy water, recalling our baptism which, of course, wipes away original sin. After the penitential rite, we frequently recite the Gloria, 
Could you say a little about that part of the Mass, the Gloria? I realise this is not used in every Mass, but since it's used in most Sundays and in important feasts, I thought it would be a good idea to get your reflections on it, please. Yes, John, I would like to comment a little on the Gloria. The Latin title of the Gloria is Gloria in excelsis Deo, Glory to God in the Highest Heaven. That phrase occurs first in the hills outside Bethlehem after the birth of Christ when the angels announced the birth of the infant Jesus to the shepherds. The glory is not used in every Mass, as you say, but it occurs on a high percentage of the Sunday Masses. Ideally, of course, it is meant to be sung as a hymn. It's a hymn of praise, but it is still quite proper to recite it without singing. It is inserted there in the Mass as a great prayer of praise to God. I suppose in our Catholic tradition we're not that strong on the praise of God in our regular daily prayers. Now we do have such phrases as praise be to God or God be praised. But if you look at prayers we find in the scriptures, we find that theme of the praise of God all over the place. It is particularly strong in some of the Psalms. The Gloria very much brings out the attitude and language of the worshipper of God. For example, in the Gloria, you have in quick succession five verbs expressing that sense of worship. We praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you, we give you thanks. There is a kind of an exuberance, an enthusiasm, a joy in those words that jump out at you. It goes on to give Jesus various titles, like Lord Jesus Christ, Only Begotten Son, the Lamb of God, Son of the Father, the Holy One, the Most High, and so forth. So you can see how that prayer, the Gloria, rejoices in the role Jesus has been given by the Father in relation to us. And just after the Gloria, we have what is called the Collect, or the opening prayer of the Mass. It is a prayer said by the priest that always catches something of the meaning and theme of the Mass. There are two other such prayers always said by the priest. One is the prayer over the gifts at the offertory, and the other is the post-communion prayer towards the very end. I want to praise you, Lord, much more than I do. I want to praise you, Lord, much more than I do. Learn to seek your face and the knowledge of your grace. I want to praise you. But I think the whole first part of the Mass is called the Liturgy of the Word. Could you speak a little bit about that title and especially 
about the reading of the Word of God at Mass. Yes, that that's true, John. That first section of the Mass is called uh, the Liturgy of the Word. And later we will see that the second half is called the Liturgy of the Eucharist. Um, both Word and Eucharist are ways in which the Lord is present to us in the Mass. I suppose traditionally we Catholics are more familiar with the Lord's presence to us in the Eucharistic species, in his body and blood. But the Lord's presence to us in his word is also a very important reality. So in this part of the Mass, the Lord is present to us in his word. You note the reader says at the end of the readings, the word of the Lord. And the priest says at the end of the Gospel, the Gospel of the Lord. We speak of Christ himself as the Word of God, as, for example, in The Word Became Flesh. There we are describing Jesus as the Word, God's most profound utterance, as it were. Jesus is God's self-expression, as it were. It means God made his most profound communication with us when he sent his Son, into the world. It takes a bit of getting used to the phrase, the word was made flesh. Now when we use the expression, the word of God, to describe scripture, we use it in the same sense of God's self-expression, God's self-utterance. So when the scripture readings are read at Mass, we are speaking of God's self-expression as proclaimed aloud to the listening congregation. The word of God that is read at Mass in the first and second readings can be taken from the Old or the New Testament. The Old Testament readings can be strange or obscure, but they too are important because they show how faithfully and painstakingly God built relationship with his people, how we slowed down to our pace, as it were, and patiently walked with his wandering, stumbling, often faithless people. Usually the second reading is taken from the New Testament, most frequently the writings of St. Paul, also the Acts of the Apostles, the account of the early church. And the Gospel reading, of course, is always uh, taken from one of the four accounts of the life and teaching of Christ that we call the four Gospels. I will come to you in the silence I will lift you from all your fear You will hear my voice I claim you as my choice Be still and know I am for all who long to 
Following on from last week's reflections, it's uh, delight for me to welcome back into the Come and See studio Father Frank Duick again, who's going to continue his reflections on the Mass. Good morning again, Father Frank. Morning, John. OK, last week we went through right the way up, I believe, to the Liturgy of the Word. So maybe, Father, as I remember you saying at one point, that Christ is present in different ways when the Eucharist is celebrated. Can you expand a little bit on that, please, Russ? Yes, John, I think that's worth spending a few minutes on. Theologians and liturgists speak of Christ being present in four different ways when the Mass is celebrated. First, the theologians point out he is present in the gathered community of God's people, the congregation. People will remember the words of Christ in the Gospel, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. Secondly, Christ is present in the person of the ordained priest who leads the congregation in the prayers of the Mass and who helps people understand the words and actions of the liturgy. When the priest does that, he acts in the person of Christ and on behalf of the congregation. Thirdly, Christ is present, as we reminded listeners last week, In the Word of God. As we pointed out last week, each time the Word of God is proclaimed from Scripture, Christ is present in that Word. This can be a difficult concept to grasp, but it is very important that we be aware of that special presence of God in the living Word of Scripture. The fourth and special and probably best-known presence of Christ is in what we call the Eucharistic species, the body and blood of Christ. This is often described as the real presence, capital R, capital P, the real presence of Christ. This does not mean that the other three presences I have mentioned are not real. They are. But the emphasis on real presence regarding the Eucharistic species is to counteract the belief by some that the Eucharistic species are only a symbol of the body and blood of Christ. 
we will come back to deal with this again, John, when we talk about the consecration of the Mass. Open my eyes, Lord. Help me to see your face. Open my eyes, Lord. Help me to see Open my ears, Lord. Help me to hear your voice. Open my ears, Lord. Help me to hear. Open my heart, Lord. Help me to love like you. Open my heart, Lord. Help me to love. So, Father Frank, can you speak a little bit about the significance of the creed in the Mass? Yes, John. Um, first of all, there are two versions of the creed. Uh, that can be used at Mass. There is the Apostles' Creed, which is the one most of us would have learned and indeed probably know by heart. This creed has been traditionally used as the beginning of the rest, at the beginning of the recitation of the Rosary. Uh, the other creed that is used frequently in the Mass is what is entitled the Nicene Christ Creed. I should point out, John, that the word creed comes from the Latin word credo, meaning I believe. What we have in the creed is a gathering together of the core dogmas of the church. The Nicene Creed is the more substantial of the two. And this Nicene Creed got its name from the Council of Nicaea, which was the first ecumenical council held in the church. It took place in the year 325, long time ago, John. This creed was further developed at the Council of Constantinople in 381. You will note that in the course of professing our faith in the creed, we use the phrase, I believe, four times, at the beginning of each of the four sections. In the first section, the focus of our belief is God the Father, the Father Almighty, we say, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things, creator of all things, visible and invisible. The second section focuses on Jesus Christ, his Son, and on his relationship with the Father. It is in that section that the word consubstantial turns up uh, to describe Jesus' relationship with the Father. There was a lot of ill-informed discussion, John, about this word when the new translation of the Mass was introduced five or six years ago. And the suggestion was being, you'll remember, John, being put forward that that time that a simpler, more familiar word should have been used instead of this big, strange word, consubstantial. But as I said, this talk was ill-informed because there was no simpler word that could catch the reality that was being described. 
This word, consubstantial, describes a unique reality and doesn't describe any other reality. The third section uh, focuses on the Holy Spirit. And the final section uh, introduced by the phrase, I believe, is professing our belief in the church founded by Christ. We say, and I quote, I believe in one holy, Catholic and apostolic church. Some of our listeners will remember learning off what were called the four marks of the Catholic Church. One, holy, Catholic and apostolic. And we conclude the creed there by saying we look forward to the resurrection. So, Father Frank, up to now in these reflections, we've been dealing with the first part of the Mass, the Liturgy of the Word. Can you lead us on now from from there, please? Yes, John, having covered the Liturgy of the Word, we now come to the second major part of the Mass, the Liturgy of the Eucharist. Something to note here, to mark the movement on to the Liturgy of the Eucharist, a practical thing, is that the priest moves from the ambo to the altar. Up to this point, the altar has not been used in the Mass. This second part of the Mass begins with what we call the offertory or the preparation of the gifts. Up to this point, there is only the missal on the altar. In fact, strictly speaking, the liturgists remind us that the missal should not be put on the altar until this moment. Then when the priest moves to the altar, either the altar servers or members of the congregation bring the bread and wine to the altar. And the prayer said during this part of the Mass point in three directions. People will be aware that the prayers said are as follows. Blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation. Through your goodness we have received the bread the wine we offer you, fruit of the earth, and work of human hands. It will become for us the bread of life, or will become our spiritual drink. So you have emphasis there on three things. First, God the Creator's goodness. Secondly, the human labor by which the wheat and grapes is transformed for human benefit. And thirdly, the final destiny of the gifts themselves when they become the bread of life and our spiritual drink. Our offering, as it puts it, my sacrifice endures, as the priest says to the congregation. Gifts of bread and wine, gifts we've offered. 
So the next part of the Mass, Father Frank, is the Eucharistic prayer. Can you talk a little about that to us? Well, John, I'd want to be a, a professional dogmatic theologian uh, to take you into the depths and, and the history of this part of the Mass, and I'm not a professional teacher of theology, so I'll try and make a, a few simple points on it. Before you do that, before you do that, may I interrupt you there for a second, Father Frank? Uh, I now ask you to clarify, how many Eucharistic prayers are there? That's a good point, John. We need to clarify here uh, how many there are. First of all, there are the four basic Eucharistic prayers that people will be most familiar with, called simply Eucharistic Prayer 1, 2, 3 and 4. Then there are other Eucharistic prayers to be used on specific occasions. Perhaps they're not used often enough. And these would have a particular theme running through them. As you said, uh, Father, Father Frank, the Eucharistic prayers take us very deep into theology. But can you give us a few insights into them? Yes, John, I would like to make a few points that I hope will make the Eucharistic prayers a bit more accessible to people. At the heart of all Eucharistic prayers, you have the consecration. This is the most sacred moment in the Mass when our gifts of bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. Catholic theology is very clear, John, on what it calls the real presence, as we mentioned before, stressing that we are not talking about the Eucharistic species of bread and wine being symbols of the body and blood of Christ, but a real presence of Christ's body and blood. Jesus didn't say, this is a symbol of my body. No, he said, this is my body. The word theology uses for this transformation that takes place at the consecration is transubstantiation, a unique word not used to describe any other reality. This transubstantiation is the very heart of the Eucharistic ministry. In simple language, what we have here is Jesus gifting himself to us. Many people, John, I believe, have walked away from the Mass because they say they cannot understand it. But, John, none of us can understand the Eucharist. It is something we accept by faith. Faith based on the clear teaching of Jesus. We are dealing here with mystery. Father, the Eucharist is it's a reenactment of the passion, death and resurrection of Jesus. Isn't that right? That's right, John. Jesus, for the first time at the Last Supper, took bread and blessed it, took wine and blessed it. And then he said, this is my body, this is my blood, which will be given up for you. And all of this was in anticipation of what was to happen 
in the following days, the death and resurrection of Jesus. On Good Friday, his body and blood will be offered up on the cross. And that happens each time we celebrate Mass. The Mass makes it possible for us to connect evermore with what we call the Paschal Mystery, the Passion, Death and Resurrection of Jesus, the most momentous event this world has ever known. Father, Justin, what you're saying there really points to how important the, the Mass and the Eucharist is. It certainly does, John. Uh, it is such a pity that so many people have walked away from it. If they only realised the treasure they are leaving behind them. There is a line in the documents of the Second Vatican Council which says, and I quote, The Eucharist contains the entire spiritual wealth of the Church. End of quote. The Eucharist is at the heart of what we are about as Catholics. Because in it, we are, as I've said, we are, as I've said, drawn into the passion, death and resurrection of Jesus. I cannot stress that enough, John. And all of that is reflected in each of the Eucharistic prayers. Before we move on from the Eucharistic prayer, is there anything else you want to say about that part of the Mass? There's so much you can say about it, John. I'm supposed to mention that in every Eucharistic prayer there is a commemoration of the living and of the dead. Indeed, if we listen carefully, John, to the Eucharistic prayer, we notice that we pray for everyone and for all God's plan. To conclude here, John, just a little word on the Amen response that the congregation makes at the end of the Eucharistic prayer when the priest says, through him, with him, and in him, and that prayer and so forth. That Amen is known as the great Amen. You see, only the priest says the words of the Eucharistic prayer aloud. And I think it was St. Augustine that referred to that Amen, the great Amen, as the people's signature to the Eucharistic prayer. There is the danger that the Amen response is so short that some people don't bother saying it. This is a pity because Amen means, yes, I agree, I believe. A very important response. Jesus, 
Come to the Lord's Prayer, dear Father. Can you give? A, can you can you comment on that, please, Father? Yes, John. This, of course, is the prayer that Jesus Himself taught us, and again, it is full of meaning. But just one or two comments on its use in the context of the Mass. The Lord's Prayer is very much a community prayer, prayed to our Heavenly Father by us, His children. It's worth noting that even when we pray it privately, on our own, we still say our. We don't say my Father. We also say give us this day. Uh, You or I don't say give me this day. So it is a prayer we always pray, conscious of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So you can see how well it fits into the Mass where we are gathered with the members of our local Christian community. So then we come to the sign of of peace. Any comment on that, Father? As I said, uh, John, at Mass, we are a gathering of God's people who are called to love one another and thus to create peaceful communities. And we started the Mass calling on the Lord to forgive us for ways in which we have failed to love one another, failed to live in communion with one another. So here at the sign of peace, we wish one another uh, the peace that Jesus offers us. You will remember John, Jesus saying in St. John's Gospel, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. A peace the world cannot give, that is my gift to you. End of quote. And now we're coming to the reception of Holy Communion. Yes, John, here we find Jesus giving himself to us, body of Christ, and we reply, Amen. In other words, I agree, I believe that it is the body of Christ. So that Amen is meant to be a profound act of faith in Christ's real presence. Again, that brief but very important response. Amen. So, Father, we're very near to the end of Mass now. Have you a final comment? Yes. Uh, 
The Mass ends with what we call the post-communion prayer, followed by the priest giving a final blessing to the congregation. And the very final words spoken by the priest are, Go in peace, glorifying the Lord with your life, or in another translation, Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. I actually prefer that latter translation, to love and serve the Lord. Because I see, John, I see that as our task for the week ahead. To love and serve the Lord. And by our prayer and above all, by the way we live our lives. And let us note, John, that the first thing we do when we gather from Mass is we call to mind our sins. That is, we call to mind ways in which we have failed to love and serve the Lord. Another way I have heard this put, and I quote, In the Eucharist we break the bread of life, the body of Christ. And our task going out from the Eucharist is to break the bread of our lives in love and service of the Lord through love and service of one another. Thanks, Father Frank, for, for sharing those reflections with us. Just one little observation, maybe just as we finish up, I'd have myself after listening to your reflections. He said that we as lay people are not just onlookers watching the priests saying Mass. We're participants. Oh, certainly. Certainly participants, uh, John. And uh, perhaps the sense of being there listening to Father doing the Mass Maybe that's a, a relic from the time we had the Latin Mass when people didn't understand. You know, those of us of a certain age will remember when Mass was in Latin. So maybe that cast people into the role of kind of uh, passive, maybe, listeners, you know, which would certainly not be an accurate description of of, of what they are. No. Now, it must be said, John, that while we do stress, you know, very strongly that the, the people are participants, they're not uh, passive listeners. Uh, we must stress the profound connection between priesthood and Eucharist. We cannot stress that enough because if we don't get that connection, a lot collapses. There is a profound connection between the, the, pre, the, the, the ordained priest and uh, Eucharist. And we must never lose sight of that. And that's why, you know... The, it's such a worry for people at the moment, you know, not the the possibility of not having priests to celebrate the Eucharist, which is so, so central to our lives. But having said that, um, no, the congregation are certainly not uh, passive onlookers, so to speak. 
They're, they're all there, the gathered people of God, the baptized people of God, all responding to God's call. You know what I mean? I see Mass John. Um, we're called in and we're sent out. Yeah. Rather than say, I go to Mass and I go home after Mass. Mm-hmm. I am called in. My, my decision to go to Mass is a response to the invitation of Christ, do this in memory of me. And when I go out, I don't just go out, I am sent out. Sent out to do what? To love and serve the Lord. So, Father, thanks again uh, for giving us that, 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 that final reflection, that final thought to take away with us. Couldn't help but um, but think as you were speaking there. It might be an opportune time for you to share with us um, a vocation prayer, please. Could you share that with us, please? Yeah, certainly, John. I would love to. Thank you. Something we should be all praying for vocations all the time. I sometimes wonder, I have no way of knowing, of course, but I sometimes wonder, you know, how often do people pray for vocations? People should be praying every day for vocations. Almighty God, you have called us through baptism to discipleship with your Son, Jesus Christ, and you have sent us to bring the good news of salvation to all peoples. We pray that those whom God is calling from our community to serve him in priesthood and religious life may respond with generosity and faith, and that they may receive support, encouragement, and spiritual nourishment for the seed of their vocation in their families and in our wider parish community, we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father Frank, thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome, John.
worship Jesus.